my mom always told me when I was growing up, and you know, she said, the more you possess, the more you're possessed. It's First Ginny 5, 2. And it's a, good, it's a good thing to remember. I think simplicity is the best. So when we're being thankful tomorrow, yeah, be thankful for all the material things, but be thankful for the grace of God, amen. Be thankful that your name's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life and that heaven is your destination because of Jesus. So, Father, we just thank you tonight for all our blessings, but none more than the gift of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we asked as Jesus ascended and broke the back of sin, he sent the Comforter to us. And he, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit tonight. Holy Spirit, move in this place as you have done during worship and open up the word to us that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and our flesh and it would get to that spirit-to-spirit -spirit connection where we can be changed. Father, I ask that as this book is lived out in front of us on the video, that things would just come alive to us in new ways, that we would see new things, and that we would walk away with something from your heart. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 9, enjoy. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. 
and of all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me. <laughs> so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. <laughs> he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard it were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lured him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who'd been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. 
All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated as Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Elida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. <sighs> Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. Ah, this became known all over Joppa. Many people believed in the Lord. stuff son can you hear me so lots of movement again Saul's conversion there's a transformation process from Saul to become Paul and God initiates it now we see Saul doing his thing and he's in full persecution mode it, it is such a complete change in this man's life that, you know, it happened so quickly and uh, with so much precision. And I want you to see the way God orchestrates this. Uh, many times we like when God does things quickly. Anybody? How many you like God promises you something and 10 years later he says, hang in there? <laughs> Who likes that? Nobody. Quick stuff like this, quick turnaround, quick changes. I mean, this is the this is the quintessential complete turnaround in a person's life. Saul's out there. He's doing his thing. He's in persecution mode. He's hell-bent on stamping out the way. And, uh, you know, they didn't call them Christians. They didn't see it as a church. They were calling it the way. They're calling on the name of Jesus. They were told not to, to teach or, or preach that name. But, you know, they're still doing it. The church is growing. And he's trying to stamp them out by any means necessary. In fact, verse 2 shows us that he's on his way to secure letters from the religious powers that be to give him legal authority to arrest and imprison Christians in certain places. So realize something. He's working the system here to persecute the church. Uh, if you study throughout Scripture the role of governments and the, the leadership structures of man, you're going to realize right away that government that is godly is ordained by God, but government is a necessary evil. Okay, those, of, those in our nation who look to government to solve problems are really foolish. Because if you study the scripture, all throughout scripture, governments persecuted the church. If you look at the book of Revelation, it's governments that are going to stand with the Antichrist against the saints, against the church. 
the church will be raptured, the tribulation saints will be persecuted by government. So here's the governmental systems, the, the religious power brokers. He's going and doing uh, whatever he can to get letters to secure legal authority to arrest and imprison those who follow Jesus. Now I wanna say one thing, just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. Now I need a better amen or I'm not gonna continue. I'll say it again. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. Okay, God's ways are higher than man's ways. Well, pastor, they're going to legalize this drug, so it's okay to do it now, right? I only got a few no's, and most of them were from Marion. So, <laughs> you, you see, God's laws are higher than man's laws. And we got to remember that. It, you know, slavery was legal. Segregation was legal. All of these sins that plague nations. Uh, in, in, if you study Nazi Germany when they were systematically eradicating Jews, all of that was legal. Wow. There could come a time where the church has to say, we have to obey God rather than man. And though, you know, those who want to entertain that idea go down the drain with the world. So it was legal. He was getting the legal authority. He was securing letters. He was doing whatever he could to stamp out the church. It was immoral. Uh, and, and he thought he was doing God a favor here. And there again, that's something that'll happen in the last days. If you study eschatology and you look at the book of Revelation, the people who persecute the saints will think they're, you know, they're doing the, the good stuff, the right stuff, but it's deception. Verses three and four, Saul is busy trying to destroy the church. He wants to stamp it out, not just hinder it. He wants to completely destroy it. One arrest at a time, he is knocking down the ranks. He thinks he's about to topple it, but he's confronted powerfully on his way to secure those letters. Now, in verses three and four, we see he has a, a suddenly moment. He was traveling, and it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here's Saul doing his thing. And he has a suddenly moment with Jesus. Jesus intervenes. Now, most, most people believe he was probably riding a horse at the time. It's the way they traveled. He wasn't a poor person. Uh, so you're thinking, here he is. He gets hit with this light. He gets knocked to the ground. It's, it, it's something that, you know, it's not a little thing that you can ignore. Sometimes when God is trying to get our attention, we miss it. Anybody? Any, anybody ever miss the, sti the still small voice only to realize, I sh oh, that was God trying to tell me, and, you, and I missed it. I remember many times as a young man just, you know, getting to know the, 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 you know, the voice of the Holy Spirit only to, you know, think, well, what's that about? And then missing it and then realizing, oh, you know, that was the Lord. So hopefully as we become more mature, we miss it less. <laughs> hopefully we don't miss it at very crucial junctures in life. <laughs> and uh, God comes in a way here, it's not a still small voice. It's a big, loud, booming experience. When you get knocked to the ground and blinded, that'll get your attention. He has his suddenly moment. He's overwhelmed at every level. Light flashes from heaven. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus sees Saul's actions here as not just the persecution of good people, righteous people, nice people, church people. He sees the persecution as persecution on himself. I want you to see that. 
When you and I are persecuted, Jesus doesn't look down and go, oh, you know, they're mistreating poor, you know, poor, my poor children. No, it's you're persecuting me. He didn't say, why did you imprison so-and-so? And why did you rip this one? And why did you have Stephen Stone? He said, why do you persecute me? And I want you to catch that. Why? Because we have to understand how the Lord feels about us, how important we are to Jesus. He loves his bride and his bride is the church. And when you and I suffer persecution, when you and I are afflicted because of him, he takes it personally. That's a good thing to know, amen? The person who you need in your corner takes it very personally when you're persecuted for his sake. Now, in verse five, Saul responds honestly, but it shows the depth of his ignorance. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. So check this out, his response here. He's knocked to the ground. He's, he's accused of persecuting. He's blinded. All of this is overwhelming, but he shows how ignorant he is and how deceived he is. He has no idea that it could be Jesus who would be speaking to him. He has no idea that God in heaven sent Jesus, his only begotten son, and everything that the people who followed Jesus, the way, was absolutely true. He's completely ignorant of the fact that he is persecuting Jesus. Now understand, it's partially because of that ignorance that God is gracious to him. When you sin out of ignorance, there's a little grace there, a little more than usual. Hello? But when you know it's wrong and you know what you're doing and you've been warned and you've been convicted and the Holy Spirit's checked you and you still continue to do it, there's a little less grace there. Oh, welcome to Wednesday night. And so he's ignorant here. You know, who, who are you? His response tells, you know, everything that we need to know. You know, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting me. What a moment for Saul, who's going to be transformed, in, transformed into Paul, when he realizes what he thought he was doing for God was really against God. When he thought he was doing righteous works, suppressing, as it were, a cult or a, a sect or false theology, he wakes up to find out that he's actually fighting against God. You see the danger of religiosity. You see the danger of becoming an ideological zealot. That's what the Pharisees were. They were so ideological, they became narrow-minded. They knew so much about the scriptural text that they missed the Holy Spirit. They knew so much about the coming of the Messiah that when he came, they didn't recognize him. That ideological zealotry caused him to be deceived to the point where he thought he was doing God a favor by stomping out this cult, this sect, this insurrection, but really he finds himself fighting against God. Now, verse six, Jesus doesn't wait for Saul's response. He doesn't say, you know, Saul, will you follow me? Saul, will you accept me as your savior and Lord? Saul, will you enter this nice altar call I'm about to give you here in the desert? Did you notice that? He doesn't do any of that. He knocks him down. He blinds him. He, he brings the accusation against him. He says that it's personal, that you've been persecuting me. And, and what's the response? He says, he tells him that, you know, get up and you got to go see what you must do. You know, he's basically didn't even give him a chance. You say, well, you know, did he have much of a chance there? But get up and enter the city and, and it will be told to you what you must do. It, it's as if, you know, Jesus made him an offer he couldn't refuse. 
Anybody else getting this? Does, does God usually do that to you? I mean, does he give you a choice? Does he honor your free will? Most of the time. Not this time. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? You see, God's plan, God's destiny for this man's life was so powerful. It was either, you know, hey, you're going to lay there and be blind for the rest of your life, or you're going to follow me. So, hey, let's get up and let's get going here. Do you see how he makes him? Now, of course, we have a free will. Of course, he could have rebelled against it. But God has a way of somehow boxing us into corners at moments in life where we have the choice to obey him or another choice that is just not even a choice. God knows how to get your attention. God help us if we have to be in positions like that where we're so deceived, where we're so off track, where we're so you know, ignorant of what God is doing that he has to knock us down and blind us and tell us to let's go. You know, you gotta get this straight. I mean, it is just such an incredible moment in Saul's life. And you see the sovereignty of God's hand. Yes, we have free will. We are made in the image of God, but God knows how to, how to get us to the place where we have little choice but to be obedient to him. Why does he do that? Because he has destiny for our lives. <laughs> and he loves us so much. You know what? He does everything he can to make us not miss it. Wow, that's good news today. Verses six through eight, the people uh, with Saul hear a voice, but they don't see anyone. So that's a confirmation of the miraculous event. It, they can't just say, well, he's a madman. You know, nothing happened. We don't know what's going on with him. He must have had a seizure. Do you know how the world likes to explain away the supernatural? <laughs> well, not this time because God, you know, he speaks to Saul, but other people around hear it. There's the bright light from heaven. There's all of these voices. So it is a miracle. It is corroborated by those people. Uh, he's blinded and the, the ones who were, you know, being led by him now lead him by the hand into Damascus. Now think about this. Why does God blind him? Listen, because spiritual blindness can be ignored, but... <laughs> You know, we can be spiritually blind and think everything's okay, but physical blindness cannot be ignored. There are people who walk around all day long spiritually blind. And you might say, how was your day today? Oh, I had a great day. You know, I, I made a bunch of money. I did everything I want. I ate what I want. You know, we, you know, I did X, Y, and Z. And I did, you know, it was a great day. But spiritually, they're blind and they're lost. And should their heart stop beating now, they would spend eternity separated from God. You see, spiritual blindness can be ignored. Physical blindness cannot. And God wanted to make sure to get his attention. Didn't want to just flash him some light. Didn't want to just talk to him. He wanted to really get his attention. So he touched him physically in an indisputable way. And now the one who is leading the destruction of the church is led by the hand into Damascus. Uh, Verse nine, he's blinded for three days. He eats nothing and he drinks nothing for three days. You, you know, you might think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. Think about this though. Three days without water, you're close to death. You can't go without water much more than three days. 
So this guy, he's completely shut down. This is an overwhelming event in his life. God has definitely got his attention. You know, when he won't eat and he won't drink and three days and he's, he's physically close to being in trouble, you know, uh, death is at the door. Something's got to give here. Verses 10 through 19, God calls upon one of his disciples in Damascus named Ananias. And notice how God is moving by the Holy Spirit in the church. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, he did things like this, but we're seeing... Uh, more of an accelerated pace here. Uh, it's more forceful in the way God is moving in this situation. He really needs to change Saul into Paul and get going here because God can't wait anymore. He wants to reach the Gentiles. I want you to see the Father's heart here. Why the, why the pushiness of God? Why the accelerated pace? Why the, the, the supernatural and the miraculous? Because God needs to get this going here because he's waited all this time to reach those people that were outside of his grasp because they were separated by sin. Now because of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the resurrected Jesus, it's whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want, I want you to see this sense of urgency here is out of love because God wants to allow his grace to be poured out on the whole earth. Huh. And Saul is the chosen vehicle here. He's the one that God's gonna use to do it. Yeah, he had Peter, he had all the disciples, but he chose Paul. And we're seeing God's sovereignty here uh, over this man's life. Now, Ananias is in Damascus. He hears the Lord speak to him. Uh, through a vision, and you know, God calls out Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. Where have we heard that before? Sounds like Samuel the prophet, doesn't it? I realize the prophetic move of the Holy Spirit in the contemporary church, now that the veil's been rent in two, and we are filled with the Holy Ghost, each of us are prophets, priests, and kings. It's quiet. Each of us. If you didn't know that, I'll come back afterwards, I'm going to smack you around. You should have known that. Yeah, we, we are all called prophets, priests, and kings. We're, we're, we're a part of a royal priesthood. <laughs> wow, you just thought you were Joe Nobody sitting in the church, right? You, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Wow. So Ananias has got his ears on, God speaking, and he hears him. Just an ordinary disciple, but that's available to all of us. That's what I want you to get. It's not just for the prophet anymore. It's not just for God's anointed. It's not just for the king of Israel. It's for every believer because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit speaks, Ananias hears, God mobilized him. It, it, it reminds me of Samuel. Every time the Lord called out, you know, he says, and the, you know, the, the priest told him, when, the, when you hear the voice of the Lord, respond, hear am I. And that's the response here from Ananias. God speaks to Ananias with such amazing clarity. He gives him very specific step-by-step -step instructions on what to do. I love this. Many times we don't, we don't get it laid out like this, but God is so specific here. Listen to verse 11. And he said, get up and go to the street called Straight Street. So he gives him the address and inquire at the house of Judas, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a of a man named Ananias. Come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So look how very specific that is there. God speaks to Ananias, very clear, very punctual. There's no interpretation required here. Go to Straight Street. He's got an address. Punch it in the navy. Let's go. The camel is heading towards Straight Street. 
Find Judas. Ask for a man named Saul. He's praying. So God is laying all this out. He's seen a vision. Who has? Saul has. He's praying. He's seen a vision. He's waiting for you. I mean, think about that. (laughs) A divine appointment, all orchestrated by God. You say, I wish God would do things like that for me. Be available. He will. You don't believe me. He says, lay hands on him and heal him. So he has very clear directives here. And Ananias does something that's uh, a little bit ridiculous here, but all of us do it. He begins in verses 13 and 14 to inform God about all the details he missed. You know, I mean, like God says to go do this. And, you know, it is a tall order. He's very specific. But Ananias answered in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he does to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias kind of, you know, he hears the instruction. It's very clear. There's no doubt what God is saying to him, but he does something that all of us do. And it is ridiculous. We, we try to tell God how he missed it and he's got to be wrong. And there must be some mistake. Or, you know, the people who don't fight with God about him making a mistake say, can you pick somebody else? Is there a choice B? So there again, we see, you know, this is human nature. And, you know, before we're uh, too hard on Ananias here, um, he, he does have some legitimate concerns here. Verses 16, uh, 15 and 16, the Lord graciously answers all of Ananias' concerns. And, you know, this is... A, this is something that we need to look at here. God can handle our questions, but he can't handle our rebellion. You can ask the Lord anything you need to ask. You, you don't have to you know, speak to him in King James or beat around the bush or you know, ask five other questions before you get to the one you really want to ask. Come on, Wednesday night. We all do this stuff, right? <laughs> You know, pray these big flowery prayers or try and, you know, try and, you know, kind of just hide it. But we can ask God anything we need to ask, but, and he can handle it. And, and his grace allows him to answer. Sometimes there is no answer. Sometimes we just have to be obedient. But he's very gracious here. He answers all the concerns. Ananias is not rebelling. When we rebel and we say no and we act like Jonah, well, then God prepares a big fish for us. But there's no rebellion here. He tells him again, he reassures him that, you know, he knows all of these things that Ananias has talked about. He says, but the Lord said to him, go. Listen to what he says about Saul. He is my chosen instrument of mine. He is a chosen instrument. God chose him while he was persecuting the church. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the worst of our sin, God chose us. Come on tonight. What a beautiful thing. He is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. Told you that was God's motive. He wants to reach the Gentiles and and the kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So he reassures Ananias. And he, there again, he gives him this vision, gives him all the details. He tells him, go. Saul, I've chosen Saul. He's going to evangelize the Gentiles. I'm going to show him all that he must suffer for my name. So there again, he answers all of his questions. The forcefulness of Saul's calling and the uniqueness of his calling are breathtaking. Yes, we have a free will. Yes, we're created in God's image. Yes, we can rebel against God. But sometimes 
God leaves us no plausible wiggle room. We either have to be obedient or choice B is not even a choice at all. Powerful stuff. The implications on our own life are powerful. Now, we can't be too hard on Ananias for balking a little bit because Saul was enemy number one of the church. He was actively harassing, jailing, and murdering the saints. All the questions are answered. Verses 17 through 19, like a good soldier, Ananias takes his marching orders and he carries them out expeditiously. He does it right away. You know what? I found the best way to be obedient is to be obedient right away. You know, you don't have to tell the Lord, well, I'm going to pray about it. Lord, well, I'm going to think about it. Well, Lord, let me, let me ask the leadership. When the Lord speaks to us, we should be reflexively obedient. Okay? Those of us who don't learn to be reflexively obedient will be partially obedient. Why? Because the more we think about it or try and figure it out or try and think about how we want to implement it, the more we compromise and leave stuff out and then we mess it up. Israel was partially obedient and they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. You and I should learn to be reflexively obedient. If we know we've heard God, do it and do it right away. Amen, pastor. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to implement that reflexive obedience. If you come into my office and say, 10 years ago, God told me to do this and I haven't done yet. We're going to queue up this CD and listen to it together. And then you will write on the chalkboard 10,000 times. Does anybody remember that? <sighs> so let's learn that reflexive obedience. Ananias takes his marching orders. He goes, he lays hands on Saul, and he calls him brother. Did you catch that there? That's faith, amen. Just meeting this guy. He's been persecuting the church. He calls him brother. He shows his authenticity to Saul by informing him what Jesus had said to him when he appeared to him. So, you know, Saul knows what's going on in his heart. Ananias comes. They, they link up together. And the Holy Spirit is confirming to each of them that this is not Ananias talking to Saul, but this is God talking to both of them. And so there's some, you know, the le legitimate... Uh, exchange going on here and obviously they connect uh he shows him you know that he's heard from god he tells him that god has sent him to heal his blindness you, you know in the video uh, saul seemed pretty happy all he did was giggle the whole time and then and then when god healed him he, the joy was there uh verse 17 is awesome he sent him what to regain your sight and be filled with the holy spirit wow what a powerful transition in Saul's life being transformed into Paul. All of this is happening in rapid succession. Saul went from being deceived and spiritually blind to being physically blinded, and now God is about to open his spiritual eyes so he sees more than he did before God closed his eyes. Did you catch that? Spiritually blind, deceived, persecuting the church, resisting the kingdom of God, knocked to the ground, blinded physically. God says three days. Any, anybody, does three days ring a bell for anybody? I know a guy named Jesus. Didn't he spend how many days? Was it two and a half days? How many? Three days, right? So do you see the transformation process here? He's, being, he's getting buried as Saul. He's going to be resurrected as Paul. There's a transformation taking place. He's going to see more now than ever, you know, because he's going to have spiritual eyes. He's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. It's a picture of salvation for all of us. God could take the worst of sinners and quickly turn them into saints. Amen. 
What a powerful reminder to us. So his, his eyes are open. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 and 19, his entire world changes rapidly. Scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized, and he, he most definitely receives the Holy Spirit. When he is settled spiritually, only then does he begin to eat and drink again, and his physical man is restored. There's a, there's a principle there. We are so concerned about our physical man that we'll let our spiritual man starve while we feed our flesh. Oh, I'm preaching on Wednesday night. Oh, man, I got to take care of my flesh. I got to pamper it. I got to, you know, I got to take care. I got to, you know, make sure everything's okay and I'm comfortable and covered. And, you know, I got to go buffet my body and I got to... Meanwhile, the spiritual man is, I think if we could see a picture of the way our spiritual man looks at times when we neglect it, we're not praying, we're not in the word, we're, we, we've missed, you know, four, uh, three out of four services on Sunday in a month. <laughs> Got to take care of the spiritual man first. That's Christian maturity. His physical man is neglected. He won't eat or drink. God invigorates him spiritually, opens his blind eyes, uh, fills him with the Holy Spirit, then he eats and drinks. There's a good principle for us in there. Verse 20, Saul is converted for only uh, several days, a very short time, before he starts pro proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Now I want you to see this. There again, it, it's a reflexive reaction here. What? He's transformed. He doesn't go to a monastery and pray and get taught you know, for, for uh, you know, 20 years so he gets his theology straight away was all his theology instantly squared away absolutely not but he began to share what he knew immediately this is a guy who's going to write two-thirds of the new testament his you know his epistles are going to form the bulk of our theology as new testament christians yet he doesn't know all that yet god's going to pour that through him and reveal it to him but what he does know is that jesus christ is lord jesus is the son of god and immediately he begins to share what he knows oh boy does that you know all of us have no excuse that we've been sitting in church for so long, just soaking it up like a sponge, just soaking up all the gravy. <laughs> oh, you know, that's for, you know, I can't, uh, no, tell people, I can't bring people, I can't tell people. Yes, you can. And yes, you're equipped to do it. And yes, you're called to do it. That's what church is all about. That's what my job is all about. Not to entertain you, not to preach you three points and a, and a joke and send you home smiling. My, my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for works of ministry, to disciple you to the point where you, you have the word in you that you can pour it out with power wherever you go. Amen. Amen. If you thought church was anything else, you missed it. Quiet tonight. So this guy knows a little bit, but he's out there proclaiming it. His theology wasn't all straightened out. He was a work in progress like all of us are. What he does immediately is he preaches what he knows with passion and with boldness. We should catch that right there. That's a great example for all of us. What you do know, what the testimony you have, what you've seen God do in your life, share with others with passion and with boldness. It will create a stir and it will change lives. 
Verse 21, the fact that the people knew who Saul was and what he'd been doing to the church was blowing people's mind. This is the guy who's killing the saints. This is the guy who had Stephen stoned. This is the guy who's imprisoning people. And look what's going on here. This was blowing people's mind. You say, was that an accident? No, it wasn't on purpose. God wanted to do it on purpose to show how he could transform a life. Some of the saints, some of the leadership, some of the people there thought, is this a trick? Is this a trap? That's understandable. God, has, did God really turned this murderous religious zealot into the most vocal proponent of the way at this point? And the answer to that, against all probability, is that's exactly what he did. Verse 22, because Saul was so well-trained in the scriptures, he had been taught, he understood the Old Testament, he understood it with precision and how the prophetic things work together. Because he was so skilled as an order, because he was trained as a Pharisee, now that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, this guy was an unstoppable force. He confounded the Jews there. It says proving to them that Jesus was who he said he was. And I want you to catch that. If that wasn't a probability, if that was not something that could be done, it would never be in God's word. You and I, if we learn to handle the scriptures with precision, if we ingest them to the point where we understand how they work together and we are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the spirit, we can present the gospel in such a way that a person's only option would be to believe it or to outright reject it because they don't want to bow to Christ. But you and I can prove that Jesus is who he said he is. Creation proves who God is. <laughs> you know, if you're here on Sunday, Mike Girton was saying, you know, any of us who can see nature are without excuse. Why? Because nature is, it, it, nature is irrefutable that there is a creator, that there is a designer. The galaxies, the planets, the solar system, the, 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 the geosynchronous orbit of the earth, the tilt on its axis, its proximity to the sun, all of these things, the probability of them happening by accident is impossible. <laughs> the more we know, the more dangerous we are. The more we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the more dangerous we are to the kingdom of darkness. This guy is an absolute nightmare for the devil. <laughs> and no matter what, he can't be stopped because he's God's chosen vessel. So he does it with passion and boldness. He understood the scriptures. He proved who Jesus was, and it doesn't take long, verse 23 through 25, it doesn't take long at all for the Jews in Damascus who can't refute his testimony. Remember, when people who want to control others get outflanked and they can't refute you with logic or theology, what do they decide to do? They decide to kill him. It didn't take long. Now, how have the tables have turned so quickly? He goes from being the killer to the killee. He goes from being the hunter to the hunted. Wow. Talk about a shift in gears. So ironic here. And you know what? Paul doesn't stop. He's not intimidated. He, he, he understands what they were doing because he was doing the same thing. They plot to kill him and they watch him closely and they're looking for him, you know, for an opportunity to murder him. He has to be let down the wall in a basket. Did you see the special effects there? Those were good, weren't they? 
But we get the idea, you know, it's a little bit of high drama. It's a little bit of, you know, life and death here. Verse 26 through 27, Saul is brought to Jerusalem and the disciples were afraid of him. Sure they were. They didn't see what God was doing in his life. They just heard about this guy. So Barnabas brings him to the apostles and Saul gives them his conversion testimony. And, and you know, somehow they break through the confusion and, you know, the fear. And they realize this guy is the genuine artifact. Do you know when you have the Holy Spirit in you and you meet someone else who has the Holy Spirit in you, it's just amazing how the connection can happen so quickly that you can meet somebody and your spirits are just knit together instantaneously to where you feel like you've known them forever. Come on, have you experienced that? Powerful stuff. It's kind of what's going on here. The, you know, his testimony and the, the same spirit that's in him is connecting. So he's, he's being accepted. He's being taken in a little bit slowly, but you know, he's legitimate. He's the real deal. And the way he's testifying is literally putting his life in danger. So they see that this guy is not all talk, but he's absolutely action as well. Uh, now, they're plotting to kill him. They do have to get him down the wall and get him out of there quickly. He's whisked off to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. And, you know, they're moving him around here, staying ahead of the enemy. Uh, the church in verse 31 now enjoys a season of relative peace. So I want you to see that persecution and peace can be uh, cyclical things. It's not always all the time, although there's elements there that are always all the time. But understand, when we go through storms, when we go through trials, when, when we go through, you know, crisis, it's not something that goes on forever and ever and ever. Storms pass. Crisis has come to an end. Persecution heats up and it cools off. Okay? So understand the cyclical nature of these things. God knows what we can handle. And realize this dispersed the church. It planted more churches. It's led to more conversions. Now the little bit of persecution. The devil always overplays his hand and he does here. He tries to stamp out the church and instead it spreads more and it enjoys a season of peace and prosperity and numerically it continues to grow and people are being built up and discipled and now we've got people reaching spiritual maturity maturity. And that's what I want you to see. That's the point of the drill of the church. Not to big build buildings and big cathedrals and have lots of seating. It's to get people who are lost, get them found, get them discipled, and mobilize them for works of service. All right. Did I say work? Is that what did it? Praise God. So Saul is boldly proclaiming Jesus. Uh, he's, he's beginning to do what he's called to do. Now, verses 32 through 43 for uh, the next verses here, uh, it shifts gears away from Saul's conversion to Peter's apostolic ministry. We kind of catch up on Peter. Now, uh, as, as you know, important and pivotal as Peter is, uh, Paul is going to be just as God is raising both of them up. Paul's going to be focused on reaching the Gentiles. Peter, his apostolic ministry is also heating up. Uh, Peter's traveling around. He's strengthening the churches and the leadership of the churches. Uh, verse uh, you know, 32 starts the description there. Peter's ministry is affirmed by God with signs, wonders, and miracles. Realize that's the affirmation of the, the sound theology and the connection to the Father is that the supernatural invades the natural and God confirms these things. That's supposed to be part of what the church does, amen? 
And, and Peter, you know, God is affirming him here. He's obviously with him. He's doing signs, wonders, and miracles. There's two powerful public healing miracles here in the text. And on 34, we catch up with the first one uh, that, you know, he, he is doing these things and they're public. And you say, you know, you know, should we do these things in private? Should we bring them off into a back room? There's some things that should be done in private and there's some things that should be done in public. Do you believe me? If you, if you were afflicted by a demon, would you want it cast out in front of the whole church or would you want it done in the pastor's office? What, what, you're not coming out? What did you, you say? Okay, see, there's some things that need to be done in private. Why? We don't want to make a spectacle. We don't want to give the devil an opportunity to make a spectacle and confuse people or, or you know, or there's, there's people who are spiritually not mature, can't handle certain things. There are some things that need to be done in private and some things that need to be done in public. The word's clear on some of those things, but wisdom dictates that leadership have enough sensitivity to know. Uh, these miracles were public and powerful. God wanted everybody to see them. Why? Because they lend authenticity to the church and these healing miracles were things that would bring people in so they could hear the gospel. So the first one is in verse 34, a man paralyzed for eight years. Not a fluke. Everybody knows it. He's paralyzed for eight years and uh, Peter is ministering to him and then there is healing. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. I like that. Not Peter heals you. Not the first church of Peter. Not Peter Ministries International. <laughs> Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Did you hear that? Signs and wonders draw the lost to the gospel so that they can be converted. We need signs and wonders in the church. God, allow us to be spiritually mature enough and disciplined enough and committed enough that you can entrust us with signs, wonders, and miracles. Amen. So this man's healed, and the result of it is not that he's walking around, but also that people are born into the kingdom of God and the church is strengthened. Paralyzed for eight years, instantaneously, he gets up, he walks away, everybody sees it. God does it public and messy. I like it. People get saved. Public healing miracle number two in Joppa. Uh, Tabitha is raised from the dead. Tabitha, however you want to say it, I, I go with Tabitha. You know, the Greek, it's Dorcas. If, you, if your name is Dorcas, there's no need to mention it. Let's stick with Tabitha. I don't know why they put that in there. But, you know, she is... Uh, a good godly woman. She's abounding in deeds and in charity. So, you know, it's one of these people that everybody loved and she was doing good works and she was, you know, making all kinds of presents and uh, uh, clothing for people. Everybody loved her. You know, it's like Billy Joel, only the good die young. And here's Tabitha. She, some of you are just like, she's, she's dead. Now, how many would think, you know, it's easier to heal the sick than raise the dead. But for God, it doesn't matter. He can raise the dead just as easily as he could heal the sick, just as easy as he can turn a sinner's heart to repentance. For, for God, nothing's harder than the other. It's all easy for him. What's hard is for us to believe and have faith 
And you see that here, you know, in verse 37 through 39, Tabitha is sick. And, you know, it, it, it happened at the time that she fell sick and died. It, it's not that she's asleep. It's not that she's in a coma. She's dead. It says she's dead. When he washed, uh, when they had washed her body, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard uh, that Peter was with them, sent two men to implore him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. He arrived and they brought him into the upper room. So here, uh, picture Peter in this situation. It's not pray for the sick. It's like, Peter, she's dead. She's already clean. She's already perhaps embalmed, wrapped. I'm not quite sure, but it, it is as serious as it gets. He goes into the upper room, all the widows, say widows stood beside him weeping and showing their tunics and garments that Dorcas, I don't know why they called Tabitha that, but she made it for them. And they were all weeping and carrying on. Now Peter sent them all out. Some things are public and some things have to be private. There's the principle. Okay, they know she's dead, so it's not like they need to watch, but what's all, all that tumult going on there? All the drama, all the emotionalism. And Peter's just like, Pack it up and get it out. <laughs> the Holy Ghost has something to do here. Now realize when there's emotionalism, when there's you know, distractions, when there's public spectacles, sometimes we need to push all of that out the door and let the Holy Spirit do what he does. Peter has enough wisdom to do that. He sends them all out. You know, They're mourning, they're emotional, but that's not the atmosphere for God to do a miracle in. And so he creates the atmosphere for God to do the miracle in. And he, uh, you know, basically ministers to her and, and she gets healed. He tells her to get up. She gets up. He takes her out by the hand. He presents her to the crowd and everybody goes wild. Another incredible miracle. What's the fruit of it too? People get saved. You know, I believe if the church would desire signs, wonders, and miracles, not so that they can promote ministries or promote ministers or that they could, you know, get a spot on primetime Christian TV, that we would promote signs and wonders and miracles so that the lost would believe. Just maybe God would pour them out more frequently among us. And boy, do we need them because we have a dark, lost, confused, hurting, broken generation out there that's just as deceived as Saul was as he was killing Christians because they think in rejecting religion that somehow it's liberating and somehow it makes them sophisticated. But really all it does is bring them one step closer to an eternity without God. These things are powerful these things are miraculous. These things are part of the New Testament church. And I would ask you to pray with me that once again, we would see God do them in our midst. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this chapter. And I thank you for this blueprint, this prototype, this pattern, this book of Acts that we are enjoying together, that it would provoke us to think differently and move differently, that we would square up our Christian experience with the experience of the early church. And Father, everywhere where we seem like we're not in line with what you did at the church's inception, Father, would we entertain the idea that perhaps we need to allow you to recalibrate us, that we would think differently, that we would put away our distractions and our idols, and we would get in the place of prayer and find purity and maturity 
that we would get our spiritual ears on and our spiritual eyes open, that we would become in tune with the kingdom of God so that we could have divine appointments and see the supernatural touch our natural world in such a way that men would be drawn to the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise if you want. Amen.